All right, 2 Samuel chapter 24, I'm going to read through the first couple, uh, five verses, or four verses, then I'm going to jump down to verse 10 and read through the rest of the passage. Hear God's word. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. I'm going to read that again. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of the my Lord, the king, still see it. But why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. And so Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Jump down to verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall in the hand to the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba seventy thousand men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And so David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded and when Arana looked down, he saw the king and the servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord, the king, come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then the oxen, then Arana said to David, Let my lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, I will buy it for, from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings so the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. This ends the reading of God's holy and Aaron and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flowers stand, but the word of our God stand forever. You may be seated. Flowers usually fade. It's amazing how you can say things over and over and over again, and every once in a while you totally forget them. 
Well, this is our last um, installment of this series looking at the life of David. Um, and we have spent all summer looking at, at David's life and learning from this man who is called the man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, that is what da- God is looking at when he goes to send Samuel to anoint David. Is I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And we have been looking at the life of David. And through that, though, look, learning less maybe about David and more about David's gods. And we come to this last story in 2 Samuel. The story where the writer of 1st and 2nd Samuel is giving the account of David's life and this, this king over Israel. And one might want to ask this question, why end with a story of failure? Why end with a story of fa- why end with this particular story of plague and pestilence and great failure on David's part? Why end here? Well, it's because in the midst of this very real life encounter, in which a real man, not some fake figure in the Bible, some big, in some Bible story, but a real man, and here we encounter a real man encountering the real God. And actually, in this account, I believe the writer of Second Samuel ends because it shows the greatness of David, and even more importantly, it shows the greatness of David's God. I'm going to look at this morning that what makes David a man after God's own heart is primarily is the fact that David learns and becomes a man after God's own heart in that he learns to trust God. We're going to look at the call to trust this morning. It's the first place I want to start, but it is not easy to trust the Lord. And this text, as a reader, if you are listening at all to this text, this text gives you so many reasons to question whether this is a God who is worthy of trust. So the place I want to begin this morning, if you like a a heading or outline, the first point is the call to trust despite the mystery of God's ways. The call to trust despite the mystery of God's ways. We don't like loose ends. We don't like loose ends. We like our stories as Americans to be you know, for the most part in a nice box with a sweet ending where there's something scribbled at the end of a story that says they lived happily ever after. And we have a tendency to make, make stories nice and tidy with nice little virtues at the end of them. But when it comes to God and to faith and to the actual Bible stories, they're almost never very tidy, at least as we would like them to be. Tidiness can actually do violence to what the Bible was trying to communicate. It does, can do violence to Scripture and to a, a real perspective to how life actually is. Because the reality is this, is life is almost often gray and it is almost never tidy. And in fact, what I want us to see here this morning as we begin is the mystery of God means theologically our view of God often is way too tidy. Because he is a God of mystery who baffles us, who is beyond our understanding. And that is the God we get in 2 Samuel chapter 24. A God who we struggle to understand. And I want to bring out two questions that maybe, maybe you weren't asking, but you ought to. I actually think there's about five questions one can ask, but I just want to highlight two questions this morning that I think bring to this issue of will you trust despite these, these questions that, that I'm going to give you answers to that are not going to be very satisfactory. They're going to point to the fact that we have a mysterious God. And the first question is this. Why in the world... Does God call what David does sin when God is the one who incites him to it? 
I read verse 1 twice for a reason. It says this, because of the, again, because of the anger of the Lord against Israel, he incited David against Israel, saying, go and number Israel and Judah. And then what we find in the next couple of verses is God then convicting David that it was sinful for him to go number Israel and Judah. That here we have is a God who is, seems to be uh, way too much in the thick of sinful activity. Now, many people will look at this, and they, they look at this text, and they, they tr- there's a parallel story in uh, the same account as in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And there, instead of saying that God incited David, it actually goes and says that Satan tempted David to do this. And that is true. That what we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, there is not a discrepancy between these two uh, accounts here. It is true that, that Satan does come and tempt David. And people think that by looking at that, at that account in 1 chapter, Chronicles chapter 21 and go, see, look at that. See, God, was not, God can't be held responsible for this. God's not really involved in this. God is merely passive. God allowed this to happen, but he didn't go, and he's not involved in this in any way. And yet, I would say that that is actually fairly short-sighted. To appeal to God's permissive will solves nothing here. It solves nothing. It may sound better. It may make us feel better and have a a nicer, sweeter theological box in which we have put God. Uh, Yet it does, but here we still see we have a God who must decide to permit Satan to tempt David to count, to do the census. You hear this all the time. God didn't want this to happen. This often comes from well-meaning people who want to do this. They want to spare God from the burdens, the ethical burdens of his sovereignty. There are those who say, God didn't have, want this to happen, and God, can, God is not responsible for this, and God didn't plan this, and this is outside of the will of God, and by doing that, they're, they're well-meaning. They want to remove from God any connection from anything that is bad. But the Bible never backs away from this mystery, which is this. That God is utterly sovereign, and sovereign means he is king and he is in charge of everything. And that there is nothing in this world that happens outside of his will, including your sin. Including the bad things that happen. So God is utterly sovereign, even over our sinful choices and actions. We make choices. And God points to us and says, you are responsible for those choices. And yet at the same time, God has sovereignly ordained and his plan and his will for your life and for his world for those things to happen. And that is a mystery. And that is a, give, puts us in a place of ethical quandary and applies knots within our brains. And yet the Bible has no problem allowing you to live in that mystery. It brings it up over and over and over again. It is not concerned with trying to spare God the burdens of his sovereignty. Now, it is true. It is true that there are things that, out, that happen outside of God's desires. And that God has communicated, I want this for you and I want this for you. But nothing happens outside of God's will. God will have God's way and nothing and no one will thwart him. And to underscore the truth of that and how far God will go is that God will even accomplish his purposes and his will in in this world even through your sin and your evil. He even dares to say, the Bible, biblical writers dares to say that God incited 
David. Now here at the end of the story, we find highlighted this truth. This truth. And it is a difficult truth to swallow, but it's a true, it comes up over and over in the scriptures is this, is that God will accomplish his sovereign purposes through frail, fickle, and extremely fallible people. Just like David, and just like you and me. Here at the end, this is what we see. We don't know why God allows terrible things to pass. And I don't, we don't even know why God allows us to continue to sin. Have you ever asked that question? See, I grew up in a household where the sovereignty of God was, would reign supreme. It was constantly talked about and preached about and, and communicated that God is sovereign. And as a kid, I, and as the one who began to struggle with sin, I kind of wanted to go, so why in the world am I still sinning then? And I would ask God this question, God, I don't understand this. I'm saying, God, I'm sorry for the sin. I don't like the sin. Me don't want to, I don't want to continue to do this or be involved in this. And yet you're the one who has the power to stop this in me, and yet you don't. Why? And God, up to point, this point, has, has not chosen to tell me exactly why. And that is his prerogative, and I have to live in the mystery of that. We don't know why God allows terrible things to happen. He doesn't, we don't even know why something, why God allows us to do terrible things. But if you seek to spare God the burden of his sovereignty, then what you will actually do is you will strip yourself of the one hope you have in the midst of suffering. The one hope you can have in the midst of suffering, if you say that God is nowhere in my pain, and he is nowhere in my suffering, and he is nowhere in my terrible choices for my life, then you have stripped yourself of only hope that is there. Your only hope is this, that even though God does not desire this for you, that he has allowed it and it is in his will to allow you to continue to walk down that road for your good and for him to work out his ways in this world. Because God is in control of your life. And that should give you hope. That listen, I don't understand why he continues to have me in this addictive behavior. And I don't understand why he has, he has allowed me to fall into this sin. And I don't understand why he has allowed me, permitted me according to his will, to endure this suffering. I don't get it, but I know I'm not outside of his hands. I'm not outside of his hand and outside of his control. Now how those lines, this mystery of God's sovereignty and our responsibility and our life, it is a mystery to me. It is a cloud a cloud that we have very often, very rarely does God let us peer into. The psalmist, I think, understands this. Great songwriters will often understand and communicate the ambiguity of these things. Psalm 77 verse 19 says this, where God, the psalmist is writing about God's greatness and bringing the people of Israel out of the suffering of Egypt and talking about bringing them through the Red Sea. And it says this, that your way is through the sea. The sea is always thought of as a place of suffering. Your way is through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Now, why does the psalmist say your footprints are unseen? Because while we can see the direction for some reason, maybe God has an ends, we can't see the traces of his footprints. In the sea, we are his footprints, the why he is doing things cannot be seen. And we must acknowledge this. That if you're one of those people who likes to have your theological world perfectly and absolutely figured out in all its places with all the socks of your suitcase all tucked in, then this is going to be a problem for you. That if you like to have everything into a mental Excel spreadsheet, and that's how you do theology, and that's how you do life, and that's how you view God, then this is, this is going to be difficult for you. But you have to remember this. We are talking about God. There are going to be places about him that you are not going to understand. And that's the way it ought to be. 
Think about this for a minute, that this is the God of the Bible. This is the God who reigns supreme. He is infinite in power and wisdom. He is the one who slung all of the universe into being with a mere word. This is the God who has created nebulae and the planets and the stars and the complexities of an atom. He is the one who in one strand of DNA, we would fill 500 books of Encyclopedia Britannica and you can't even figure out how to connect your DVD player to your TV. And you would say, oh, oh. You see, it is, uh, it, is, it is natural, it is right that we would understand a God like this. There, there are places where our minds can't grapple with the mystery of who he is. And so, are you dissatisfied with that answer? I am often. That the mystery of God's ways baffle me. So that's question one. Why would God incite David? Question two. What in the world is wrong with the census? You know, in Exodus chapter 30, God commands a census. In Numbers chapter 1, he commands it again. At various times in the the history of Israel, it is absolutely okay for a census. So why in the world is God appear to be so upset about a census? Why is it that David is under such conviction of sin about counting people? He's counting soldiers. That's what he's doing here. Now, understand what's going on in the background of this. And there's various um, commentators look at this and look at, hey, what could be wrong with counting people? And they look at David's motivation. That there, there's a number of different things that, hey, that David is taking too much charge of the people of Israel, that he is, he is saying, I'm the king and I'll do what I want. That David is levying attacks. It's going to be um, difficult because for every soldier that were brought into a standing army, as David is going to do here uh, with a census, is that there's going to be a heavy tax burden upon Israel. I think most commentators point to this, that a king would, would number his people, and particularly, he's not just numbering all you know, men, women, and children, he's particularly numbering soldiers, because that's what Joab comes back to point out to David. He's numbering soldiers. Now, why would a king want to know how many soldiers he's got? It's because David wants, he's probably developing a standing army. He's about to bring about a draft, and you would think that this is fairly logical if you look at the life of David's. In the past, last couple of chapters, there's been not one, but two at least uh, insurrections within the kingdom of Israel of those who are trying to take the throne of David. And that's just within Israel. That's not to mention all the other enemies that surround Israel. And so what most commentators believe that David is looking to here is that he is trusting in the security of his army. That he's counting his chickens. That is what he's trusting in. That he's looking to his army to feel secure, to feel safe, instead of trusting in God. The psalmist in chapter tw- Psalm 20, chapter 20 says this, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we must trust in the name of the Lord our gods. And that David is moving from trusting in the Lord and finding security in the Lord, and in that position, and looking to find security in an army. To bolster security and make men in a great, powerful military to make him feel better about himself and his safety. Now, in all this, in this room, we have something to count with things we measure. It's everybody here, we measure things. We have things that we look to for security, like David is doing here. It may not be an army, but it may be a bank account, or it may be accomplishments at work, and things to make yourself feel safe and acceptable. And secure. For example, the Bible calls us to give away at least 10% of our income. And yet the stats show that the average American Christian, the best American Christian, gives away 3%. Why? Because with all of our talk about trusting Jesus in this and finding our identity in Jesus about that, that ultimately we don't trust him, we trust our money to keep us safe. 
to keep us secure. We live out the realities, the true theology, the true things that we trust in in our lives. And so we count on our money, we count on our age or our youthfulness or our talents or accomplishments, and that's what we look to to keep us secure. And this can be lethal to us. Now, I just going to take that as a side. That's all speculative, though. Because ultimately, the text never tells us, never tells us why it was wrong for David to take a census. And this is what is so infuriating. That we may speculate, and commentators may, you know, they come up with anywhere from nine to ten different reasons as to why this was wrong of David to count the military and count all these men. But the text simply says that it's wrong because why? Because God says it's wrong. That David is convicted, and he's convicted because the Holy Spirit tells him that it's wrong. We look at this and we say, what in the world is wrong with counting soldiers? And God simply shows up and says, because I say it is. Because I say it is. Now, what do you make of that? Doesn't that bother you? Don't you like to have a reason for why the Holy Spirit is convicting you? Don't you like to have a reason for when God tells you to do something or not do something that you would like God to come and say to you, hey, I'm telling you to do this or not do this, and here's the reason why. Don't marry that person that you've been in a relationship for three years. Um, I'd like an explanation as to why. I, you know, I had some good plans with that person. Why? But what we find here is this is the, the challenge for so many of us. We, we, we perhaps assume that God must always explain himself to us and justify his ways and his will to us. And if, you, if you're a parent, you've experienced this, right? That what you experience in your children is ultimately, we never really grow out of it, the question of why. That as a parent, when I tell my kid, hey, I need you to do this, and they look at me and they say, why? Why? Because I said so. That's why. You see, Ralph Davis, who's a great commentator on First and Second Samuel, says this, that a four-year-old who tells his parents, I will obey you if you'll explain to me and show me why I should obey you, that is not obedience, that is agreement. That is not obedience, that is agreement, and it is putting the four-year-old in a place of ultimate authority. That I will obey you when I deem that it's appropriate for me to obey you. When me and my great four-year-old mind can, can fathom why it is that you sh- I should or should not do this. And this is also, we never really grow out of that. And we're always constantly asking God, why? I'm not going to follow God until I can understand why. It's not a move towards obedience. It is a move towards agreement and autonomy. Where you are the one who is ultimately in charge. God says, obey me. And sometimes you must obey me, he says, even when I don't give you a reason as to why you must do so. Some of you have given up on God because the direction of your life hasn't gone the way that you wanted it to go. You turned away from God because you didn't understand why certain things happened. And you said, I've had enough of this God because I don't understand his purposes and his way in my life. But think about what you're saying saying in in this thought process. You're saying, God, I will believe in you as long as you give me a reason. That I can't, if I can't see any reason for this suffering or this challenge in my life, and because I cannot see any reason for it, then there must not be one. And what we have done is we have put ourselves in the place of sovereign. We have gone from being little king to big king. We're saying, God, that's nice. And friends, that is not walking by, that is not walking by faith. That is walking by sight. To constantly demand that God give you reasons for why he has called you to do something. You see, the commands of God's, 
The commands of God sometimes come without explanation. Abraham, leave your family and wander in the desert. Why? Because I said so. Okay. Why does God come off and bring his commands without explanation? It's because the call here, when he brings us such commands, it's a call and a question to us that say, will you trust me? It is because of our lack of trust in the sovereignty and the goodness of God, and this has been our deepest problem since the Garden of Eden. Garrison Keillor, I think, makes, brings this out really, really well. You know Garrison Keillor, Lake Wobegon. Harry Garrison Keillor asked this very poignant question. Who could be in a secluded garden with a naked woman and be tempted by a piece of fruit? Have you thought about the ridiculousness of how man fell? That the rule that God gave Adam and Eve, without really any explanation, he said, don't eat of that fruit over there. It wasn't, hey, I would really appreciate it if you didn't murder people. That wasn't the rule. Hey, don't steal. That would be really bad if you stealed. No, it's don't eat of a piece of food. Why? Just because I said so. Now, why in the world would God give such a seemingly silly law, a command, listen, you can have everything else, but don't eat of an apple or whatever piece of fruit it was. God doesn't give a reason, and that is the reason why. God is asking Adam and Eve this question. I have given you all the world. I've given you dominion and dynasty. I've given you each other. I've given you all the plants and all the animals. I've given you everything. I've given you myself, and I ask you this one thing. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Because I said so, and that is the point. There is not a reason, and that is the reason. By not offering any reason, then that leaves only one motivation for obedience with Adam and Eve. God, we just trust you. We don't understand why the one rule is don't eat of that fruit. That is beyond us. We don't have the knowledge for that. And yet, and yet, we trust you. And that is the question that Genesis chapter 3 and 2 Samuel chapter 24 and all the Bible is calling us to answer is this question that God is bringing to us. Will you trust me when you don't understand my ways? Will you trust me even when you don't understand why? David, in trying to, let's say, let's say his sin was trying to find security in an army, is he is trying to take his life into his own hands and find security and find control through, by trusting in a large army. But God is saying this, that having, and he's not saying that having a standing army in and of itself is wrong, but he's saying what is the problem is that you're not trusting me to provide for you. You're not trusting me. And this is the question for you as well. Will you trust God, even when his ways for you are mysterious, when you don't understand why your child has rebelled, when you don't understand why that suffering is in your life, will you give trust and control over a mysterious God or will you hold on to it yourself? That is the question. And by the way, just as a means of comfort, I want to remind you of this. David, remember what David does for a hobby on the side? He writes this thing called the Psalms. And there is, in the Psalms, there is, it is the greatest display of talking about how faithful God is and how trustworthy God is and how he trusts him. David is the greatest worshiper and the greatest truster almost we see in all the Bible. And yet we see, what do we see David struggling with? Trust. 
The reason why this is so poignant and perhaps why this is the last place that, this, that the writer of 2 Samuel leaves us is this, is because this is the challenge that you will wake up each and every morning with. Will you trust God? Our hearts, as we sing it so often, are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love and to take control of our lives. So how in the world, though, how in the world or why in the world should we trust? Why should we trust? If we have a God whose ways are so mysterious, who ethically we can't even understand him half the time, who's, who is, is, is beyond us, who doesn't take the time often to even explain himself, why should we trust him? Why should we trust him? How can we trust? Well, that's the second thing I want to look at this morning, and that is the reason to trust in view of the mercy of God's character. There is a beautiful verse here. God comes to David through the prophet Gad and says, even though you have been convicted of your sin, even though you repented of it, I'm still bringing consequences into your life and into the life of Israel. And I'm going to give you three options. This is like the reverse of genie in the bottle, right? Hey, here's three options. It's like laying down. If you're, you know, here, here's different, three different spanking spoons. Which one would you like? You choose, David. You can have a famine. You can be chased around by enemies. Or there can be a plague on you for three days. Which one it is, is it? And David chooses the plague. And for one, two days, the plague comes down and force by the angel of the Lord, the angel of death comes down and 70,000 men deplete David's wondrous army. And then, but yet, in verse 16, we see this beautiful on the third day. He doesn't finish the discipline. With the angel stretch out his hand, Toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Rana, the Jebusite. Those are sweet words. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when David is, is leaving Jerusalem as he's fleeing his own son and there's a man cursing him. And the, the, what David believed about God was God's mercy and he cries out to God and says, God, I, am, this, I, I, I deserve this discipline, but would you be merciful? And this is one of those cases where we see that God stops short. That the discipline is right and it's just and perhaps it's even for their good and yet God says, I will be merciful by the way, just as an aside, I want, you to see, I want you to see this. That God relents before there's a sacrifice. Now, there's going to be a sacrifice required here in just a second. But he is going to require a sacrifice. But he relents at least temporarily of this discipline and this destruction before the sacrifice is given. And I want you to see this really quickly. That that is true in this world. That there are places where God, because of the bent of God's mercy and his character, that he is merciful to even those who are not yet repentant. That Matthew puts it like this, that God's reign falls on the just and the unjust. That his son falls on the just and the unjust, on the repentant and the unrepentant. That God is simply a common mercy. He doesn't bring his discipline to bear in all the full weight all the time upon everyone. But ultimately, while we see here is God is, rest- is his restraining mercy, a mercy that he often offers to believers and unbelievers alike, but ultimately, what needs to happen to stay the hand of God in this destructive work, ultimately must hap- what must happen is a sacrifice and blood must be spilt. An atoning sacrifice must be paid. In verse, in verse 18, God says, I will stay my hand if there is a sacrifice. 
And God commands David to make a sacrifice at the place, at the very place where God relents. It says this in verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Raise it, go, raise up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor or on the Jebusite. Sac- what I want you to see here is sacrifice is required for mercy. Because God is not about an arbitrary mercy, he's about a just mercy. A mercy that takes, that takes into account his justice and the good discipline that he needs to bring into our life, but also brings into account his merciful character. And David understands this. And so you see this in David in his interaction with Arana. By the way, Arana is a title. It's probably not his, his proper name. And in First Chronicles chapter 21, he's called Ornon there. We believe that Arana is probably a title, kind of like a, kind of a lordship kind of role for Arana, that he's kind of a, a feudal lord of some sort. But Arana comes to David, or Ornon comes to David, as David's going to come and make the sacrifice, and he wants to buy his property, and he wants to buy cows, and Arana says, no, 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 I'm going to give it all to you. And David says, no, no. Sacrifice. Sacrifice means that something must be spilt. There must be a payment and it is here that David, David is going to lay down his altar. He's going to lay down his sacrifice so that God relents. So David sacrifices, God relents. God stays his hand in view of the sacrifice. Now there is a beautiful secret wrapped up here within this text. It's the secret of geography. You see, in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. That's the temple. In Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. In case you didn't catch that, what is going to happen is David is sacrificing in the very place. The place where God's relenting and the sacrifice happens is right where the temple is going to be built. It is here on Mount Moriah, on the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite, that the temple is going to be. And here, day in and day out, for the next hundreds and thousands of years, sacrifices are going to be spent, and people are going to cry out for God to relent and for him to be merciful. And here, we have David, though, we, we find a problem. But that's cool. Isn't that great that the temple is built here? That David sacrifices and there's mercy. But the reality is, is there's going to be hundreds and thousands and, and millions possibly of goats and, and sheep and cows that are going to be slaughtered on this very land and this very spot, crying out for the mercy of God. As an atoning sacrifice saying, God, will you forgive our sins? Look upon this sacrifice and forgive our sins. But this will not actually cover David's sin and our sin and the people of Israel's sin. In Hebrews chapter 10 it says this, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And it also says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. And so it is wonderful. It is this kind of temporary foreshadowing that God says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But it is only a foreshadowing that we need something more. We need a shedding of blood and atoning sacrifice that will ultimately bring a a stay of God's hand, that will bring us an eternal mercy. But fortunately, our biblical history and geography lesson doesn't end here. We look forward in the fact that the threshing floor of Arana will become the temple, but we must also look back because the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, is on a mount called Mount Moriah. 
And you may remember that Mount Moriah is the place where a man named Abraham walked up with his son Isaac. And at the moment where the sword is above his son to slay him, God says, I relent, stay your hands. And he says what? I, I will provide the sacrifice. See, what we see connecting here is this biblical story in the Bible that Abraham and the David point that there is one who is coming a greater David, a greater king, and a greater shepherd who will provide the sacrifice to cover over the people's sins. David, David couldn't provide. He couldn't cover up his own sins with his sacrifices. He couldn't cover up the people's sins. But we see this hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years later that we see that in Matthew 1 verse 1 that David, or Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, is born. And it is him who will go to a place not far from the threshing floor of Arana and he will lay down his life as the sacrifice that will win for you the ultimate stay of God's hands. That ultimately we get mercy and we get forgiveness. And in that place, that the angel of death, that the sword of God's hand, that in these places when Abraham has a sword over his son, God says, I relent. When the, when, the, when the sword of the angel of death is over Jerusalem, God communicates to David, I relent, I will have mercy on you. But when Jesus, there near the floor, the threshing floor of Arana, is on a cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God says, I will not relent, but I will pour my wrath down upon him. Why? So that you and I, so that you and I may never taste the wrath of God, but we taste only the mercy and the forgiveness of God. So I asked you earlier this question. Why? Why should you trust a God who is beyond your understanding? Why should you trust a God who often doesn't explain himself, a God of mystery? This is why. Because in the midst of all that mystery, there is this greater mystery. It is the mystery of mercy. And listen, you may be baffled and your trust may be shaken by the the, the fact that God does not often answer us. But listen, the reason why, ultimately why you can trust this God is because we see his goodness for us and we see the way his sovereign plan is working out even through evil to bring the greatest good for us, which is his mercy and his grace. That you would shake your head, that you would look at this that you might shake your head and go, man, this God is beyond my understanding. But beyond that, the thing that sh- puts that to rest and makes you trust in this God is when you will sh- also shake your head and go, oh my goodness, I cannot fathom such mercy as this. And that is the reason why you can trust. So are you trusting in this merciful God? you giving your life to him. That's the call here. Are you laying yourself down before him? Don't trust in ways, even when there's times in which it's not clear to you why God has called you to do something. The call, that's the call here. Don't trust in the ways that are clear to you. Don't trust in the wisdom and the ways of the powers of man, but trust in God even when his ways are mysterious. Now, what does it look like when you do that? You look like a man after God's own heart when you do that. You look like a woman after God's own heart. And that's what I want to see, lastly, give you some application of sorts, some takeaways, the practice of trust as a man after God's own heart. And we see it in David. Are you trusting God? Well, in order to answer that question, I'm going to ask you to gauge your trust in, in with two other questions. Are you growing in repentance? 
Are you growing in repentance? You know, many people, the, the, the classic look at David's life is Psalm 51. After David, David sins with Bathsheba and he has Uriah murdered and put to death. And David uh, has this great call of repentance and he cries up over the Lord. And that is awesome. And you can learn so much about repentance from Psalm chapter 51. But I think what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 24 is a more mature version of repentance. Look at a couple of things to point out about the growth that David has experienced in repentance. First, he repents quickly. And the same with Bathsheba, what happens? He goes at least a year before Nathan must come and convict him of sin, must challenge him. And yet, what do we see here? There is no prophet involved. David allows himself, by the pricking of the Holy Spirit, to be convicted of his own sin and to declare it for what it is. No one has to confront David. David is repenting before God, even before God mentions any consequences in David's life. He repents not of consequences. He's not sorry for the consequences of his sinfulness. He's sorry for the sin in and of itself. He repents quickly. Second, we see he not only accepts the consequences, he accepts the consequences with the sin of David and Bathsheba, but he also accepts the consequences here. But beyond that, he is adamant about bearing the consequences himself. You see, he looks at God in the angel of the Lord when he relents. He says, do not do this to the people of Israel. Take it out on me that I will bear the consequences of my sin, that I will understand it. And lastly, we see that David takes full responsibility for his sin and acknowledges this, that his sin has had corporate effects. Listen, so many of us, the weakness of our repentance is we'll say, yeah, yeah, I did wrong, but oh my goodness, don't blame me for that. But we need to recognize this as you need to come to the terms with we need to repent and cry out before the Lord the God and confess the fact that not only are we the ones who have sinned, but it has had a ripple effect into our children's lives and our parents' lives and the life of our church and our friends and our family. And David recognized that his sin has had drastic corporate effects upon Israel. I want you to see this. The maturity and growth in grace does not mean that you repent less. It means you repent more, more quickly, and more deeply. You see, people who think that God accepts me because I'm a good person are almost always slow to repent. They have to be, right? Because if my acceptance is based on my goodness, then it's going to take me a very long time to admit that I'm not very good. But when you come to terms with the fact that it is not about how great you are, but how great your God is, and about what he has done to extend to you mercy and grace, then that frees you to admit your sin all over the place in which you can be quick to repent and quick to say to your spouse, so let me ask you this, is that you? Why don't you go ask your spouse today? Go ask a roommate or a coworker. Are you seeing humility in me and that I am more willing to repent now than I was three or four years ago? That I'm more willing to simply take my 1% and not point out your 99% of the problem, that I will bear my weight of the guilt And I will take responsibility for it. Go ask your kids. Go ask your friends. Second, I want you to see this this question to evaluate, to gauge your trust. Are you trusting in this mysterious God? Are you turning from all of the places of security and instead turning to find the security that is in God's mercy alone? In other words, what I'm pointing out to you is repentance on two sides. It's two sides of the same coin. And confessing what's going on inside of you, but then looking in trust to who God is. David has looked to his, mir- his military might for security. God says, comes to David and says, listen, I've got, you, I've got three options for you about your discipline. 
You can take one of these three options. And David takes, I'll, I'll take the option that only lasts three days. Now, is that David just kind of, is his reasoning there? You know what? I'm just going to get this over with, so we're going to pull the Band-Aid off real quickly. Three days, we're going to get it done. Out, we're done with our discipline. and get on with life. Is that what David's doing here? No, no. Verse 14 is an incredibly profound verse. When he explains why he chooses three days of plague, he says this, I don't, I, don't make let me fall into the hands of other people. But I will, in this, I will choose to do this. I choose this option because in it I fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. A famine or a war, he could end up at, his, at the mercy of his, of his enemies. But only here is he in the mercy of God and God alone. There is no other vessel between him and God. It is merely God bringing the plague. He wants to go one-on-one with the mercy of God and say, listen, here I can plead God's mercy directly. Here's what I want you to see is David is about to meet Yahweh's wrath. And yet, you know that's what's going on. God is looking at him and says, choose your discipline. And David goes, I'll choose that one. And in view of your wrath, I'm going to choose that one because I know how merciful you are. That my only place of security, that I'm a sinner and I deserve this. I deserve way worse than this. And yet the only place of security that I know I can find in this world is not in an army, and is not in all my wives, and is not in all my riches, is not in my goodness, but my place of security is in the mercy of God and the mercy of God alone. It is consolation to us that we can throw ourselves at the feet of God. And so yes, is your life, is there some mysterious things in your life that you cannot understand why God brought into your life? Yeah, almost all of us have those all the time. And yet the place of security, the place where you can rest, the place where you can run to, even in the midst of all of your questions, is this. Because God has profoundly made it known and has made it sure in Christ Jesus that there is mercy for you, and those mercies are new, how often? Every single day. Now that's security. So you repent of your sin. You become a man after God's own heart. You become great by viewing yourself as small and seeing the mercy of God as great. Let's pray. God, the reality is this, is we don't like to trust. What I confess before all these folks and on my prayer card about money The line there that I say that in my confession about money is this, that I just want enough money so that I don't have to trust in you. Lord, I want just a big enough army, a big enough church, just enough success, just enough moral goodness in myself that I don't have to trust in you. Oh God, and bring us to the end of ourselves, to all of our means of looking for security elsewhere. And Lord, maybe you look to one, one, one place and one place only. Your mercy, O oh God. So God, I pray that those in this room who are not convinced of your mercy, that the cross will become real to them. That the great work of the gospel will become real to them. That your spirit would press the truth in. That Lord, the hand of God has, is fully and finally relented. That there is no, no more wrath for them for those who are in Christ Jesus. For we have found a place of security in the mercy of God. 
So convince our hearts of that, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.